1: Hey, once again, welcome to the show. This is where we revel in wrong think, which it turns out is rapidly becoming a forbidden activity. I don't know. I kind of feel like I was born to revel in wrong think. So uh, for me, the big challenge is just to make sure that the, the wrong think that I am uh, am helping to bring to your attention is wrong think of an uplifting and constructive nature that hopefully leaves you more sure at the end of the program of who you are and what you stand for than simply who or what you may be against. And man, we are starting out on a, starting a new adventure. The next chapter of American history has begun. And this, I mean, already, holy cow, I mean, it, I, it's, it's like somebody waiting to get into the bathroom. And I'm sorry to compare the White House to the bathroom, but, but to see the incoming administration, the executive orders have begun to flow, and oh, we must reverse, we must erase everything that came before. And th- the scary part about that is, as someone who treasures personal liberty, freedom of conscience, private property rights, free markets, that means that uh, you and I are probably targets, and, and I don't mean that in a figurative sense, like, yeah, people are going to disagree. With, I mean, like, no, there are, there are people seriously suggesting, you know, what we really need is we need some kind of secret police force to keep an eye on these troublemakers. Now, they're going to call you Trump supporter, which uh, maybe you were, maybe you weren't. But the bottom line is, if you are not on board with everything that is about to be force-fed to you, <laughs> yeah, get ready to it. To be, get ready to wear the label of the enemy. You're going to be marked. It's an interesting time. No doubt about it. The big question is, will this new chapter of American history actually see an end to the constitutional system of government that we've enjoyed for, what, 234 years now? I know it's, it's not a pleasant thought, but um, I, I want to qualify what... I'm going to share with you an article here from Stephen Presser. I found this on intellectualtakeout.org. How to Restore Faith in the Constitution. But there's something I want to say at the beginning here. It may strike some of you as a little bit, uh, I don't know, flippant, maybe maybe even sacrilegious. I believe that the Constitution um, was the product of some of the best efforts of mankind with divine help to craft a system of government that, uh, that would enable the greatest amount of freedom possible. Now, because you had human beings doing that drafting of it, there are imperfections. I mean, the three-fifths rule and you know the, the codification of slavery, yep, that was a problem. But it was also the norm at that time. So let's not pretend that they knew everything that we know and ugh, they, they still did what they did. You know, if you've studied anything about the the ratifying conventions or the the constitutional convention itself, you'll understand. There were a lot of compromises and a lot of back and forth. It was not just an easy thing that they had all written out and everybody just needed to rubber stamp it. But at the same time as I say this, and and I'll be very clear with what I'm saying, I believe that God inspired the founding generation. I believe he inspired them to, to write up that system of government. They drew upon biblical knowledge in how they separated the powers. But I don't know that it was necessarily the, the end for, in other words, I don't think it was the, the, the one thing that we were supposed to do, and from that time ever forward, it was the best we could do. I think it was a fantastic starting place. I think I agree with my friend Connor Boyack that maybe that was the stepping stone to get us to something even better. And I'm talking in terms of limited government, personal freedom, free markets, etc. So my point is, uh, look, I believe that uh, I believe that there was, in fact, uh, divine providence at work in the founding of this nation, up to and including the drafting of the Constitution. Now, it, it may seem kind of weird because I'm also a big fan of Lysander Spooner, who was of the impression that, hey, that Constitution was either written so loosely as to prevent all of this abuse that we've seen taking place or... It was written in such a way, um, you know, that that it was powerless to prevent it. Either way, he says, it's not worthy of us. Okay, I'm going to disagree with him on that point. When we follow it, we see incredible prosperity. We see incredible freedom. We see, you know, the taming of a continent and and, and unprecedented strength. And I think a lot of goodness, too, mixed in with mistakes, that human beings make. But let's just, for the sake of argument, talk about it. If you were trying to help people understand, and for that matter, restore their faith in the Constitution, how would you go about that? Stephen Presser says, in one of the most extraordinary passages of his most extraordinary book, C.S. Lewis, the 20th century's greatest Christian apologist, wrote of Jesus Christ that he was either the Son of God, as he claimed, or a madman. In the Christmas season, believers take comfort in their faith and joyfully embrace the first alternative. Now, he says the United States has a tradition of separating church and state, but there is a compelling tradition, equally venerable, that our government is fit only for a religious people. In other words, one that understands there is a divine order to which humankind ought to conform, and that, as Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett once explained, it is our task... To contribute to the building of the kingdom of God. Now, if a higher power holds sway on Earth, however, it was difficult as it often is to discern a celestial hand in the ordering of uh, American politics at the close of this last horrible year. Many, if not most of our Constitution's framers believed that their task of establishing a government freed from the European tyranny of monarchy and hereditary aristocracy was a providential one. Still in our jaded and secular time with society caught in the grip of a horrific pandemic and with draconian social restrictions still in place, optimism and faith are severely challenged. Our president, some of his subordinates, one of the nation's greatest mayors, and some of our wisest pundits appear to sincerely believe that we have just experienced the greatest election fraud in our country's history. I think this was written before uh, Biden took office here. (laughs) An enfeebled man who barely campaigned purportedly received millions more votes than a vigorous incumbent who exceeded the vote tally of any previous president running for re-election. Now he says we have a problem like that posed by Lewis. Either Joe Biden pulled off something that can only be described as miraculous or the American people are the victims of the worst political crime and political gaslighting ever perpetrated. Public opinion polls make clear that most Republicans are convinced that this was a stolen election. And most Democrats differ. We were a divided nation before, but with so many Americans now convinced that if Biden is inaugurated, we will have an illegitimate president. He says it's difficult to understand how we can continue to have faith in our electoral system and in the notion that ours is a government of laws and not one of arbitrary power exercised by a sinister cabal. And I'm going to add to that, who would feel the need to surround themselves with tens of thousands of army troops and essentially uh, turn the capital city into a garrison city because that's how legitimate that election was. Okay, forgive me for, for this annotation here, but the truth doesn't need that much help to stand on its own. It doesn't need censorship. It doesn't need, you know, raw force and intimidation to get people to believe it. Just a little something to think about. So far as our courts, so far our courts rather, have refused to, uh, to give a full examination of the merits of the dispute. The mainstream media has chosen uncritically to accept the view of partiz- of the Biden partisans. And there's only one way out of this dilemma. That's for some neutral fact finder to examine the evidence of fraud put forth by Rudy Giuliani Sidney Powell, Peter Navarro, Trump himself, and others among the president's advocates to reach a conclusion the American people will accept. I think what he's saying here is a fair hearing, right? I'm not in the habit of rising up and burning to the ground, you know, my neighborhood or my city because something didn't go my way politically. I might be disappointed, but at least if I have the sense that this was honest, this was, this was thoroughly checked out, you know, I'm willing to accept the results and move forward. Not so. <laughs> Not so for a, at least a half of the American electorate. I'm going to come back to this article in just a few moments. How to, how to restore faith in the Constitution. Because right now a lot of people's faith is is shaken. I don't think I've seen more fear and anxiety at any time in my life among people... Who, who aren't, you know, they're not prone to, to just, you know, uh, an attack of the vapors because something didn't go their way. I see genuine fright in people's faces. So let's do what we can to alleviate that. We'll pick it up just the other side of these messages.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: Hey, welcome back to the show. I am sharing with you an article from Stephen B. Presser, How We Can Restore Faith in the Constitution. Before I do, let me thank my sponsors, Bank. that would be my friend John Staples, Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, that's my buddy Steve Burgess, and of course Monticello College. We're going to be having Dr. Shannon Brooks join me on the program here in the next few days and to talk a little bit about... Uh, about the, the importance of classical liberal arts education. More important now than ever because uh, it, it teaches people how to live as free people, something we seem to have forgotten along the way. Stephen Presser asking, how can we restore faith in the Constitution when right now <clears throat> you have roughly half the country feeling that uh, they, have been, uh, they have been the victims of a coup? And in fact, a lot of people looked at the military and all the barricades and everything around the Capitol and said, well, this is just to make sure that the coup isn't uh, somehow interrupted. I'm not comfortable with the idea that that's what happened, but you know what? I can't deny that there's a possibility that's exactly what happened. What would really be helpful is for some neutral fact finder, as Mr. Bender says, to examine the evidence of fraud put forth by Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, and others and reach a conclusion the American people will accept. So far, the attitude of the mainstream media and the Democrats is to deny that anything untoward took place and to uh, they did everything they could to hasten the ejection of Trump from the White House and the installation of a Biden-Harris administration. And by the way, look at how they are diving in and trying to change things and the executive orders and the moves. I mean, it it is... Uh, frantic, they know their window of opportunity is short before the people catch on and go, wait a minute. Now, Stephen B. Presser says, if that uh, administration is to have any chance of securing the approval of most of the American people, its legitimacy is going to have to be established by more than fiat. Congress has now chosen to exercise its constitutional prerogative to endorse a Biden victory. But Mr. Presser says it's impressed, it's still imperative rather, for the doubts held by so many Americans to be resolved. If the American experiment is to stand a chance of enduring, somehow <clears throat> there must be a means to seek to reveal the truth or falsity of the allegations Trump and, <clears throat> and his supporters have made about this election. Now just a quick aside. I know there are plenty of people who say, well now the courts had plenty of opportunity. 80 opportunities, I've heard some people say. But my question is, did the courts actually hear the case or did they dismiss it on a technicality? Because the only case that I'm aware of in which the court actually listened to the merits of the case was in Pennsylvania. And by the way, that, uh, that court decided in favor of Trump. Only to have that decision later overturned, say it with me, on a technicality by another court on appeal. Interesting. Stephen Presser says it would be better if our mainstream media would do its investigative job and if the Supreme Court would exercise its responsibility. But they haven't. And they didn't. This now appears unlikely, and he says, faith in our basic institutions and in the exercise of our franchise is endangered. Those who objected to the certification of the Electoral College vote by Congress had argued for the appointment of an independent governmental commission modeled after the one used in the 19th century to resolve a similar contested election, but that effort foundered in the face of the disturbances at the Capitol on January 6th. Quite a coincidence, wouldn't you say? Nevertheless, Stephen Presser says the very idea of the supremacy of popular sovereignty is at risk, unless somehow we can create a means for these charges of election chicanery to be examined perhaps by a consortium of objective researchers, academics, and lawyers, who could then submit their findings to the court of public opinion. That court has always been the highest tribunal, and as always, the only only the virtue of the American people can preserve this republic. He says, these are unprecedented times. There must be a clear confirmation or denial of a stolen election in 2020, and the American people must demand accountability if not before a Biden inauguration, well, too late now, then in 2022 and 2024. But he says only that will restore faith in our constitutional system. So I'm going to have a link to this, and I, and, and you can find it in the show notes at the com. I would be willing to see a lot of things fall before I would, before I would give up or alter my, my belief that personal freedom, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, um, free markets, private property. Before I would give those things up or think that, yeah, they're a bad idea and it's probably best if we just, you know, forget about it. I think it was Judge Learned Hand who talked about how uh, the, the Constitution, the words on paper, are one thing. But as we've seen, it's very easy for the government to ignore it, for people within the government to twist it to their own meanings. And by the way, that's not a recent development. The ink was still drying on the Constitution when President John Adams you know, signed the Alien and Sedition Acts. I mean, talk about stabbing right through the heart of the First Amendment i have a book and i don't know where it is now my wife has hidden it because it's it's the cover disturbs her as it should it's uh, it's called the the uh, i think it's called the rape of the american constitution some of you will be familiar with an old publishing house called loom panics loom panics would would publish books and, and publish on subjects that other people wouldn't wouldn't touch and there was a constitutional attorney and i'm sorry his, i i know his first name is chuck i forget his last name super nice guy Totally comes at this from a a progressive, atheistic, non-religious point of view. But he wrote and documented one of the, the best historical accountings of how the federal government, starting under the Founding Fathers, has been violating the Constitution throughout our nation's history. And I think the reason my wife doesn't like that book the the, the cover um has a cartoon uh, you know depiction basically of the Supreme Court justices holding down and and having their way with Lady Liberty it's it it's disturbing and it's meant to be because it's it's meant to portray that a a horrific violent act is taking place and not for our own good so somebody suggesting we'll just lie back and enjoy it no <laughs> it's not going to happen But my point here is this If an ACLU card-carrying attorney who really has no belief in divine providence being a part of the, the Constitution can see so clearly and so clearly outline... And by the way, this was 25 years ago that this book was published. It's only gotten worse since. If he can see that, why can't you and I? And it's been the death of a thousand little cuts... But I do agree with, with Stephen B. Presser. If, if we're going to see faith in our system restored, then, then there's got to be something that demonstrates that that system is still responsive to the American people. Now, I noticed the qualifier that a lot of media types and a lot of politicians have used, including Republican politicians, who are like, hey, can we move on here? Uh, they're trying to either endear themselves to the power centers or just, just the thought of people actually getting uh, interested and engaged in government makes them uncomfortable. Maybe that threatens their sense of, hey, we can't do exactly what we want because people are watching. And so their advice is, hey, you know, uh, we didn't see any widespread voter fraud or evidence of widespread voter fraud. How widespread would it have to be? Because right now, I think there's there's a pretty convincing case that can be made for a lot of the American people that, hey, no matter who you vote for, you're going to get John McCain. By the way, that's a, a nod to Tom Woods for for pointing that out. The way the system is set up right now, no matter who you vote for, you end up with John McCain. But I think that's been taken to a whole new level, especially if uh, if the elite think that uh, they can simply manipulate uh, what they're doing. And, and again, I, I think that uh, I think there's great doubt that uh, as to whether or not this last election was manipulated. Just a little, just enough to get them over the edge. There's a whole lot that doesn't add up. I know you think we can't handle the truth, but I don't think we're going to settle for anything less.
0: Short of that, maybe we withdraw our consent. What do you think of that? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is
1: brought to you in part today by Alta Bank. This is a mortgage lender right here in my home state of Utah. My friend John Staples is the guy that I would like you to talk to. If you are looking for a home loan, or you are looking to refinance your existing home loan? Those interest rates are so low. By the way, I expect they are probably going to start going up rapidly because uh, it, there's no doubt that Taxes are going to be going higher. Jeff Deist has a, a marf- marvelous, uh, uh, just kind of a prognostication. What can we expect from a Biden-Harris administration? And and it can pretty well be summarized in more government, more spending. It would not be surprising to see interest rates, uh, you know, start to to come up as a result of all of that spending and and. Uh, basically the, the irresponsible monetary policy and fiscal policy that, that we're going to be seeing more of, maybe even at an expanded pace, at the federal level. So get on it quick. You'll find the contact information for AltaBank in the show notes at the Brian Hyde show.com Look for the show notes for January 21st. The contacts are right there. The sponsor links are right at the bottom of today's show notes. So are you feeling any fear, nervousness, anxiety? man I've talked to a lot of people this last few days who uh, are very openly saying I'm just I'm just down I'm just I'm just feeling you know dejected by everything that's going on around us and can you blame them I mean the fear that's being pumped at us 24/7 is is getting it's getting tiresome I don't watch any kind of MSM news anymore I hear a little bit of it each hour at the top of the hour because that's, that's what's playing on the network. And so I, you know, I, I, I can hear what's going and, and the I, I've just never seen more blatant gaslighting. I've been paying very close attention. I, I would not say I'm an expert on media bias, but I damn well know it when I hear it. <laughs> I mean, I have, I have worked in the belly of the beast for a long time, 35-plus years. I know when, it, when someone is spinning, and it's, it's as, as hard as anything I've ever seen, and fear seems to be one of the dominant tools that's being used, I suppose, to stampede us in the direction of someone else's choosing. So when it comes to finding freedom from fear in anxious times, how do you do that? Well, thankfully, Annie Holmquist, the editor at intellectualtakeout.org, has put some thoughts on paper about this. I really like her approach. She says if you're lucky enough to avoid fear, nervousness, anxiety, these feelings dominating your person right now and turning a few more hairs gray, she says, then you can still likely smell them in the air and see them in the actions of those around you. And it doesn't matter which political party people align themselves with. Liberals' fears showed in their frantic attempts to impeach Trump at any cost and call for the National Guard to secure Joe Biden's inauguration even after they lambasted a similar action by Trump during the summer riots. Meanwhile, conservatives look askance at politicians who seem prepared to pursue politically motivated punishments against voters for whom they chose to vote for, all while ducking for cover from the censorship onslaughts of big tech. Yep, she says fear, it's all around us. Sadly, Such fear plays right into the hands of diabolical forces, a fact masterfully portrayed by C.S. Lewis through the demon Screwtape in the Screwtape Letters. Fear, writes Screwtape, is best fostered when men fixate on the future, giving their hearts to it and placing their treasure in it. Thinking about the future inflames hope and fear, giving a focus to the unknown, so that in making them think about it, we make them think of unrealities. This is the opposite of what Screwtape's enemy, a.k.a. God, wants men to do. Screwtape continues, quote, But we want a man hag-ridden by the future, haunted by visions of an imminent heaven or hell upon earth, ready to break the enemy's commands in the present, if by doing so we make him think he can attain the one or avert the other, dependent for his faith on the success or failure of schemes whose end he will not live to see. We want a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end, never honest, nor kind, nor happy now, but always using as mere fuel wherewith to heap the altar of the future every real gift which is offered them in the present. End quote. Gosh, I feel like I'm, that's another one I need to make a note of. Break out the C.S. Lewis. Does that not ring true? How many things are you missing? How many good things in your life are you missing right now because you are focused on what's coming? Oh, man. I'm as guilty of this as anybody. So, Annie, thank you for that kick in the seat of the pants. I I really needed this. She says this mentality sounds familiar, especially in the political realm. Each party is always looking toward the next election, convinced that a certain candidate with the right political ideals will be the savior we need. We pull strings and work hard to see that Messiah ride in on a white horse, only to be disappointed when he fails to achieve office or disillusioned when he does. But it pursues an agenda opposite of that which we imagined. And while all this plays out in a continuous cycle, we live in a continuous state of fear. First worrying about what will happen if our plans don't succeed, and then worrying when we don't see them come to pass. And so she asks, how do we get off this merry-go-round of fear fostered by our fixation on the future? Well, here Screwtape also reveals the answer. Live in the present and focus on the eternal. Screwtape says, the humans live in time, but our enemy destines them to eternity. He, therefore, I believe, wants them to attend chiefly to two things, to eternity itself and to that point of time which they call the present. For the present is the point at which time touches eternity. Of the present moment and of it only, humans have an experience analogous to the experience which our enemy has of reality as a whole. In it alone, freedom and actuality are offered them. He would therefore have them continually concerned either with eternity, which means being concerned with him, or with the present, either meditating on their eternal union with or separation from himself or else obeying the present voice of conscience, bearing the present cross, receiving the present grace, giving thanks for the present pleasure, end quote. Now Annie Holmquist says, For us humans who seem to exist in a state of constant worry, following such a path is easier said than done, but she says it does give us some perspective and goals. We can make sure we behave responsibly and respectfully to those around us, even when we are being treated unfairly. I'm sorry, I I have to read that one again because I guess I need it more than anybody. We can make sure we behave responsibly and respectfully to those around us, even when we are being treated unfairly. She says we can rejoice in the small victories and happy moments which arise among our families and friends. We can embrace the difficulties which come across our path and seek to weather them with a peaceful, calm attitude rather than the angry one which so readily rears its head. Lastly, she says, we can focus on eternity and the one who holds it. As Tape reveals, true freedom and a fulfilled existence are found in God. Might we not find the freedom from fear that so many of us crave right now if, as St. Augustine posited, we rest our restless hearts in Him? She sure has a way of uh, putting things that uh, I really appreciate. I think she's. Uh, I think she's on the right path. And, and look, I want peace. I suspect that there, I suspect if you're listening to this show, you're probably you didn't come here just so I could get you riled up and frightened, right? So if you're looking for peace too, that's a, that's a direction that uh, I think a lot of us are overlooking. Look heavenward. You'll have to look within too. And I'm going to take it one step further because I because I'm just feeling froggy right now. So here here goes. I'm going to submit for your consideration that to the time we live in is indeed one of crisis and one of, uh, of great risk. There's no doubt about it. I look at the direction things are going and it's like, wow, kind of thought that this could come. We've seen the warning signs. People have warned us. People who've lived under totalitarian regimes have warned us. But to see it actually materializing is, it's nothing short of shocking. But I believe that if you are present for this period of uh, this nation's history, the world's history, I think there's purpose behind it. And especially if you were dialed into this message, I believe that you have a role to play that was given to you by your Creator, and it's yours. It's not exactly like anybody else's, and it shouldn't be. It's yours. But if you're serious about doing it, it's not something that's just going to, you know, it's not a brick that's going to fall out of the sky onto your head and, and suddenly, uh, you know, make you realize, oh, hey, I, I should probably do something about that. It's something you're going to have to choose to seek. And if that's something that, uh, that resonates with you, if that's something you think, yeah, I probably should, then I'm going to suggest that that uh, choice to seek out what your role is, what God would have you do, starts with humbling yourself enough to get on your knees and ask your Creator. Now that's a scary thing because I, I think the scariest thing that anybody could anticipate is, but what if, what if I learn something about myself? What if I find out, yeah, there is something I should do? Yeah, it is scary, but at the same time, think of who your boss is. <laughs> you couldn't work for a better boss. Go get it.
0: This is the Brian Hyde show this is the Brian Hyde show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: I am uh, happy to share a couple of quick uh, articles with you here. Barry Brownstein is somebody who if you have not uh, if you have not subscribed, to his essays. I know he has his own website. He also writes regularly for um, AIER as well as uh, Intellectual Takeout. And he has written books. But uh, Barry has just a a marvelous take on things. Very grounded in uh, in common sense and and just goodness. So he has this article here that I, I thought was very interesting. A Soviet dissident explains American censorship. And like it or not, we are approaching a point where censorship is likely to become a bigger part of our lives. We're going to have to get used to seeing it and experiencing it more. And yeah, it sucks. But let's face the facts as they are and then we work to, you know, find solutions. Denying that that's the case doesn't do anything. Barry Brownstein says, many consider Vasily Grossman's life and fate to be the greatest Russian novel of the 20th century. A searing portrait of Stalinist Russia, life and fate on its very first page, exposes the bitter truth about authoritarianism. Quote, everything that lives is unique. It is unimaginable that two people or two briar roses should be identical. If you attempt to erase the peculiarities and individuality of life by violence, then life itself must suffocate. End quote. Now, as a war correspondent, Grossman was noted for his bravery. He was on the front lines during the defense of Moscow and the battle for Stalingrad. Grossman was there, too, at the aftermath of Babayar Yar and Treblinka. Robert Chandler is Grossman's translator, and Chandler traces the emergence of a powerful voice against totalitarianism to uh, Grossman's early novels. Chandler writes that in 1932, the writer, Maxim uh, Gorky, criticized a Grossman draft for naturalism, a Soviet code word for presenting too much unpalatable reality. Gorky suggested to Grossman that the author should ask himself, Why am I writing? Which truth am I confirming? Which truth do I wish to triumph? Now the truth that Gorky is referring to is, of course, the belief that Stalin's brand of communism is the supreme way to organize society. By 1938, Grossman had written stories about Stalin's purges, the constant arrests and denunciations that terrorized Soviet society. Those stories were not published until the 1960s. Important for readers today, Life and Fate exposes the mindset that justifies the distortion of truth and the suppression of alternative views to serve totalitarian ends. In 1960, Grossman believed that under Khrushchev, Life and Fate could be published. He was wrong. Chandler reports in February 1961, three KGB officers came to the flat to confiscate the manuscript and any other related material, even carbon paper and typing ribbons. This is one of only two occasions when the Soviet authorities arrested a book rather than a person. No other book apart from the Gulag Archipelago was ever considered so dangerous. Now, Barry Brownstein writes in Life and Fate... Grossman reveals the thinking of censors who justified hiding reality by their omissions and bending truth with their lies. In Life and Fate, the character Sagaidak works in the propaganda department of the Ukrainian Central Committee and is an editor of one of Kiev's newspapers. The censor's mindset is revealed as Sagaidak considered that the aim of his newspaper was to educate the reader not indiscriminately to disseminate chaotic information about all kinds of probably fortuitous events. Grossman reveals the censor's justification for passing over information and events that do not support the official narrative. Listen to this. In his role as editor, Sagaydak might consider it appropriate to pass over some event, a very bad harvest, an ideologically inconsistent poem, a formalist painting, an outbreak of foot and mouth disease, an earthquake, or the destruction of a battleship. He might prefer to close his eyes to a terrible fire in a mine or a tidal wave that swept thousands of people off the face of the earth. In his view, these events had no meaning, and he saw no reason why he should give he should bring them through the notice of readers, journalists, and writers. Sometimes he would have to give his own explanation of an event. This was often boldly original and entirely contradictor- contradictory to ordinary ways of thought. He himself felt that his power, his skill, and experience as an editor were revealed by his ability to bring the consciousness of his readers to the consciousness of his readers, just those ideas that were necessary and of true educational benefit. And if omissions aren't enough to hide reality, then, Barry Brownstein says, censors resort to outright lies. Quote, when flagrant excesses occurred during the period of out-and-out collectivization, Sagaydak wrote that the reason for the famine of this period was that the Kulaks were burying their grain and refusing to eat. Little children, old people, and all were dying simply to spite the state. At the same time, he included material about how the children in Kolkos creches were fed chicken broth, purizoki and risoles made from rice. In reality, they were withering away, their bellies distended. End quote. Barry Brownstein says American journalists increasingly mirror the mindset of Sagaidak. Last October, Twitter and the mainstream media censored the New York Post's reports of Hunter Biden's Biden's business dealings with Ukraine. The managing editor of National Public Radio, Terrence Samuel, channeled Grossman's sagaydak, saying, We don't want to waste our time on stories that are not really stories. We don't want to waste the listeners' and readers' time on stories that are just pure distractions. And quite frankly, that's where we ended up. This was a politically driven event, and we decided to treat it that way. Another NPR editor, Kelly McBride, used the It's a Russian Plot defense to justify censorship. Intelligence officials warn that Russia has been working overtime to keep the story of Hunter Biden in the spotlight. Well done, Sagaydak might say. The truth must bend to ideological needs. Smack! Wow! Sagaydak's mindset lives in the heart of every apologist for authoritarian government. Now, Barry Brownstein then notes that New York Times contributing opinion writer Dr. Richard Friedman is a psychiatrist who wants to silence dissent to the official COVID-19 narrative. The Hoover Institution's Dr. Scott Atlas has been one of the early heroic countervoices to the COVID-19 orthodoxy. Atlas had already been condemned by Stanford's faculty for his crime of promoting a view of COVID-19 that contradicts medical science. When Friedman attacked Atlas as one of the rogue physicians who needs to be stopped, here's what he said. When doctors use the language and authority of their profession to promote false medical information, they are not simply expressing their own misguided opinions. Rather, they have crossed the line from free speech to medical practice, or in this case, something akin to malpractice. End quote. Friedman considers the obvious question of what constitutes accepted medical standards. He allows, since medicine is not an exact science, reasonable minds can and should differ about the optimal treatment for a given medical disorder. Can and should differ apparently is only for trivial differences of opinion. According to Friedman, the doctors crossed the line to malpractice when, for example, they advocated the use of hydroxychloroquine as a treatment. For Friedman, optimal treatment of COVID-19 is not a topic about which reasonable minds can and should differ. I'm going to skip ahead here. The rest of the article is, uh, is posted in the show notes at the Brian Hyde show.com. But there was another part here. This is it. Censor government, not the people. Barry writes, recently Congressional Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said her colleagues in Congress were discussing how we rein in our media environment so that you can't just spew disinformation and misinformation. But he says she has it backwards. It's the government, not the individuals, whose actions should be carefully examined. In a 1792 letter to George Washington, Jefferson advocated for a free press to check government. Quote, No government ought to be without censors, and where the press is free, no one ever will. If virtuous... It need not fear the fair operation of attack and defense. Nature has given to man no other means of sifting out the truth, either in religion, law, or politics. He says, I think it is as honorable to the government neither to know nor notice its sycophants or censors as it would be undignified and criminal to pamper the former and persecute the latter. So much good stuff here. No one demands censorship of the Flat Earth Society, says Barry because there's no possibility that flat-earthers bring anything but ridicule to themselves. But as he points out here, when Dr. Atlas and others find audiences for their views, it's precisely because the narrative elevated to the one truth is flawed. He finishes by pointing out America is not a totalitarian society, yet many feel pressures to bend their mind to serve the government's narrative. Barry Brownstein writes, Self-censorship manifests when reasonable minds no longer express their differences. As authoritarian roots sink deeper into American society, he says the consequences are dire. As Grossman warns, then life itself must suffocate. This is why we speak truth as we understand it and encourage you to seek after that truth and, and vet it. And if I'm wrong, I'm trusting that you will tell me. By the way, there's a nice little comments feature there in my show notes at the So if you find something that doesn't quite measure up, for all by all means, let me know about it. Because I want to I want to speak the truth purely.
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show.